electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm Dominic Chu in for Kelly Evans today. Here's what's ahead on The Exchange. Stocks struggling a little bit today. Stimulus talks on hold until after Labor Day. China trade talks in limbo and just 80 days until the election. We look at five stocks that could be good trades heading into that November 3rd date. Plus, the tech lash over the App Store continues. We look at the growing list of companies who say Apple's policies need to change. And payment stock power, a legal setback for Amazon and why getting a mortgage just got a lot harder. A lot's coming up on deck. The exchange starts right now. We begin, as always, with the markets right now. As you can see, we are holding steady on this Friday. The Dow Industrials, we're down about 137 points at the lows today, but they're up just fractionally, marginally now, just about flat on the day. The S&P 500, 33.74 the last trade. We just can't seem to get to those rarefied marks of record territory. 33.86 on a closing basis and 33.93 on a uh, intraday basis. The Nasdaq composite underperforming down about two-tenths of one percent right now. One other place to watch is what's happening with retail. This particular ETF that tracks a lot of these retail stocks on an equal weighted basis is up one-third of one percent. By the way, the XRT, that's the ticker there, is on pace for its seventh straight week of gains. This coming after some retail sales data came in a little worse than expected, but still growing for that retail sector in America. And then the stocks that are cratering today, check out what's happening with Chinese internet names, specifically with Baidu and what's happening with Yi. Baidu, big internet giant, the Google of China, Yi, the Netflix of China, they're down 6% and 15% respectively right now. They both reported numbers, but Baidu owns a big stake in Yi. Yi just gets an SEC probe notice about some alleged accounting and fraudulent reporting practices. Those shares taken a big hit, and that resulting in this particular ETF, the KWEB, Crane Shares, China Internet, is down 2.5%. So watch these Chinese Internet names. A lot of stuff going on there. And then, of course, a big week for Treasuries as well. Check out what's happening with various parts of the curve. Ten-year benchmark note yields just a hair below 70 basis points, or 0.7%. The 30-year long bond, 1.42%, a little tick lower in trade there as well. And, of course, this all comes on a very big week for the overall fixed income market. So let's get over to Rick Santelli to wrap it all up for the weekend. Rick, I remember you telling us a record-breaking auction, at least in size, for the 30-year long bond. What's been the key takeaway from the Treasury complex this week? That that really kind of rough auction, I gave it a D minus. That auction set the stage, in my opinion, for potentially wave two of higher yields if we get equities to cooperate and the data to cooperate. The first wave of rates going up is when they started to really go hard into real negative territory. We saw much selling. Look at a two-day of 10s. It's interesting. We didn't take out yesterday's high yield. 
That is holding us back. If we start to trade above 72, look for it to pop, especially on a Friday. Look at a chart that starts mid-month. Basically, we're at the best levels on a closing basis since mid-June. Tens minus twos. Listen, right now, we are down three on tens, but we're up 13 on the week. And pretty much all of those 13 basis points show up on this one-week chart of tens minus twos on the spread. It was at 43 last week, finally. A one-week of the dollar index, as you see. It's bumping along at the basic low end of its range. And even though it's holding, many still say there may be another leg down. Dumb. Back to you. Rick Santelli, thank you very much, sir. Have a nice weekend. Stocks off their worst levels of the day with the Dow and the S&P 500 turning positive in trading in the midday. The market brushing aside weaker than expected retail sales data and the stalemate in the stimulus talks out of Washington, D.C. The S&P 500 just points away from a new record high. Is this rally in stocks unstoppable? Joining me now are James McDonald, CEO of Hercules Investments, also Brian Weinstein, head of global fixed income at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. And perhaps because we just ended with Rick Santelli talking about the bond complex, Jay, uh, Brian Weinstein, let's talk a little bit about whether or not the massive bull run in bonds is over. Well, for a little while. Uh, I, I think we tested how far we could go in, in Treasury yields down in those 50 basis points for a 10-year note, and there's a lot of supply coming. It's gotten quiet. People have gotten long. And, uh, but listen, I, I think on the other side, the, the Fed is still out there, right? Yield curve control is still a threat. I think the idea that 10-year notes are going to go wildly above, say, 1% um, is, uh, is, is hard to believe. So, yeah, we've probably done uh, most of the work for now as far as low yields. We'll come back to it in a bit, um, but some room for yields to go a bit higher. So, 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 James McDonald, let's talk about what it looks like from, from a person who has to look at the overall market. Is right. your view somewhat changed given what you saw out of the fixed income complex over the course of this past week? Does it mean that we are due for more volatility all across asset classes going into the November elections? Volatility is imminent. Uh, it's unavoidable if we study markets on a weekly basis, monthly basis, decade basis. Uh, whatever time period you look at, volatility is real. Um, but in this particular environment, we have factors that we've never experienced before with the pandemic. Uh, we have to closely watch data. We have to listen to uh, our government officials tell us what's going to happen with treating this thing and preventing uh, schools are closing, uh, maybe no college football. It's a very, very different environment um, than other situations where we had volatility. We got new data today. We got retail sales. Um, we're back above pre-pandemic levels. July purchases were up 2.7% year over year. Um, and so we are able to get clues as to where things are going, uh, but we're prepared for volatility. It will happen. Uh, we expect to profit from it or protect the All right. So, so we're going to work on some of the technical difficulties there with James's feed. Brian, I'll turn to you there. James mentioned clues, things that he's looking for. Are there things in particular right now that you are looking for or looking at with regard to whether or not we see markets able to sustain their current rally and whether or not we do see volatility heading into what could be a very volatile election season? Yes, for sure. I mean, what's interesting is I think the first couple are not subtle clues, right? We need to know the outcome of stimulus, right, which is binary, and we need to know the outcome of uh, vaccine, which is also binary. So those are uh, a little bit hard because you have to, you have to you know, decide which way the, the right way to lean is. Our view is you're going to get stimulus and you will get more good news on, on medical treatment. So uh, that means keep your risk and fixed income, keep your income, because let's look at global yields. Income is really hard to come by. I think once you get through those, then you have to get a bit more subtle, right? We're priced for, for a good outcome 
um, it's not clear that there isn't more long-term damage. So, you know, we can't be afraid to take profits uh, in, in low-yield environments when things get a little bit too optimistic. So, I mean, it's fair to say that things are fairly optimistic right now. We have a market that's just about near record highs. Yields are still at very historic lows at this point right now. Is there still some kind of relative value? You look at the entire fixed income spectrum. Where should investors and traders be putting money right now relative to everything else in the credit or, or treasury or government space? I think on the safer side, the, the zero to five-year credit investment grade spectrum, while not exciting, is still better income than most of the securities around the world. And you have a Fed backstop there, and those companies are in good shape. I think away from there, we like things where dollar weakness helps. So there hasn't been as much money into emerging markets. Uh, they've started to catch up. There's still yield there and credit space and, and, and some more local markets. Um, and then, listen, high-yield markets are harder, right? High-yield markets, you have to be active. Uh, that's where I think there could be some steam valve where there's too much optimism and you get some chances to buy cheaper levels. Are there certain places within credit and high yield specifically that are more attractive than others? Yeah, I mean, I think there, there are definitely some middle market high yield names that have lagged, right? I mean, a lot of this momentum has been into things that are big and tradable in an ETF, in an ETF world. Um, so I think as, as we're not and we're more active, we can find smaller issuers. Um, listen, you know, places like gaming and, and, and things that have been really, really beat up. We haven't been as aggressive in energy where it's just not as clear. Um, but I think, yeah, away from the big names in ETFs, I think high yield active managers have an advantage because those names have lagged. All right. James McDonald and Brian Weinstein, thank you both for your thoughts. We appreciate it. Well, coming up on the show, a closer look at the increasingly complicated relationship between China and the U.S. with reports that tomorrow's trade talks could actually be postponed. Plus, everything about getting a mortgage just got a lot harder. We'll tell you why and what you need to know. The exchange is back in two minutes. But wait, there's more. The Exchange is also a podcast. Listen to your favorite parts of the show you might have missed. Sign up now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. The U.S. and China trade talks had been on the agenda for this weekend, but we are now getting some reports that those talks may be in limbo. Eunice Yoon joins me now live from Beijing with the very latest. And Eunice, good evening. What can you tell us about these new developments? Well, Dom, it looks as though the trade talks, as you suggested, um, are going to be delayed. Uh, sources are telling Reuters that the two sides are having scheduling issues and that no new date has been set. Now, the trade chiefs of the uh, two countries that had uh, negotiated the deal back in January uh, were expected to reconvene over video conference on Saturday for a semi-annual review um, of the Phase 1 trade deal. Now, that, of course, would be the USTR's Robert Lighthizer, Treasury Secretary 
Secretary Steven Mnuchin, as well as the Vice Premier Liu He. Um, all of them were going expected to recommit to the deal. And this is despite the conflict between the two countries on so many fronts um, over Chinese technology, for example, as well as the pandemic. Now, the pandemic has made it much more challenging for China to be able to meet its pledge um, of purchases of U.S. goods as part of this deal. Uh, the shortfall was expected to be on the agenda. Morgan Stanley estimates that China only bought at best a third of the annual target uh, for this year with soybeans and energy lagging. Now, the investment bank believes that China is going to ramp up its purchases, especially of soybeans. Uh, part of that is seasonal. It's also because uh, farmers are expected to continue to restock the pig population. Uh, Beijing has also made good on other parts of the deal. Uh, which was pointed out by uh, the central bank here just this week, such as the financial opening. Now, there's a big question as to whether or not that is going to be enough for the Trump administration, but something else that the Trump administration uh, will hear um, from China and will have to think about, Dom, is that China has this week been pushing for the U.S. to create what they describe as more favorable conditions as part of these discussions. Eunice, while we have you really quickly, there haven't been a lot of formal statements from the government per se about what the character of these talks is looking like right now. Has there been anything in the quote unquote state owned media suggesting what the stance is from the, the Chinese Communist Party right now? Well, uh, the Chinese Communist Party and um, in actually in official statements as well as as uh, in the state media has been uh, trying to reiterate that they have been committed to uh, uh, carrying out the pledges in this trade deal. Um, at the same time, uh, what I thought was interesting is the uh, other point that I mentioned, which is that they keep saying that uh, the U.S. should create these favorable conditions for the trade talks, which people here uh, believe really means that they want to make sure that the U.S. Um, doesn't discriminate against Chinese companies, which is uh, one of the issues um, that, that the uh, two sides are facing right now. All right. Eunice Yoon, live in Beijing with the latest there. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Now, let's talk all about all of this with Tori Smith, a trade economist at the Heritage Foundation. Also, Fred Kemp, president and CEO of the Atlantic Council. He is also, of course, a CNBC contributor. Thank you both for being here with us. Uh, let's start first, Fred, with you, if you, if you don't mind. Uh, you, you heard Eunice's characterization of these talks. We, we hear reports that they're stalled out. Can there even be trade negotiations between the U.S. and China at this point? President Trump himself said it's very different now than it was eight months ago. Uh, yes, Tom. I, I think the situation is the following. Uh, you have Larry Kudlow uh, coming out yesterday uh, talking about progress toward the phase one deal. And that progress was an increase of soybean sales in June and July, but still far beyond, far below what was sought in, in the deal. Uh, I, I call the, when you call that progress, that's like saying uh, that the paint is peeling more slowly on the front door of a collapsing house. And so that's progress. But we have problems on the, in the technology field. You had uh, more than a dozen CEOs coming in to see President Trump uh, this week really worried about how that could hurt their business in China. You have problems in the security field. You've had China ramping up their activities around Taiwan after the visit 
of the Secretary of, um, uh, of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, to Taiwan this, this week, uh, the most important visit of a U.S. official since 1979 to Taiwan. And, you, and, and you've had new sanctions on uh, 11 Americans. You've had the arrest in Hong Kong of uh, a leading media tycoon, Jimmy Lai. So uh, these trade talks, phase one deal, is really the, the front door of a collapsing house. And so one really has to take on the whole of the relationship. And I think, as, as Trump said himself, uh, the phase one trade deal, which he once said was going to be one of the greatest deals ever, is now not so important. Tory, it doesn't sound very promising, I, I got to say. I mean, b between the news reports, between what Fred just said, it doesn't seem like we're going to make any kind of headway really on this. I remember a time pre-COVID when we talked about the economic impact and how important it was for both sides to come to, to, come to terms. Where is this deal now and will it have a real big economic impact, not just on us, but on China as well, if a trade deal cannot be moved on? Well, I think the first thing to point out here is that these talks this weekend were supposed to be a sort of routine act of the phase one deal. It requires a meeting of the uh, of the trade sort of group uh, every six months. So that in terms is kind of more routine. But what worries me the most, I think, in this situation is what are these favorable conditions that China is talking about? Obviously, both sides have an interest in having this deal be successful. We don't want to see more tariffs, which are just taxes on Americans, taxes on the Chinese people. Um, and that's not good for anyone during COVID. But if China's idea of favorable conditions is reducing some of the U.S. pressure on China um, as a result of China's actions regarding Hong Kong, their actions in Xinjiang, um, that is absolutely a non-starter for the U.S. government. And the, the Trump administration should remain strong on those pressures and issues that are not directly related to the trade deal. Tori, do we as American Americans, America, the Trump administration, everybody as a group, do we have the upper hand here, economically speaking? Is this something where we can go into a trade negotiation, if one were to happen, in a position of strength as opposed to one where we don't exactly know how the eventual outcome will shape up for Americans? Well, it's hard to know who has the upper hand, um, and that's really a relative idea. But what we do know is that the United States has many tools that they have been using uh, to address specific concerns about Chinese practices, whether they be trade practices or um, other issues, like I mentioned, human rights abuses, intervention in Hong Kong. So specifically on the trade side, I think that there's not really a lot of um, effort or, or oomph to, uh, to get more out of a deal or to get a phase two. I mean, the Trump administration has made it very clear that phase two is really a post-election goal. And like I said, I think that this meeting was more supposed to be, you know, just to follow what they agreed to in the phase one sure. deal and life. Fred, we're going to give you the last word here. What exactly then would be the strategy for the administration in the coming weeks. What exactly is the playbook? If you were advising President Trump right now, how exactly do we tackle this particular issue of moving these things forward? Well, I think the Chinese, and also to an extent the U.S., have an interest in the, in the bottom not falling out of the relationship. This is a really dangerous moment in the relationship. Heading up to the election, uh, President Xi himself um, uh, is compact through a very difficult economic year, so you're keeping the bottom from falling out. I'm really watching this WeChat issue. 
the WeChat executive order that President uh, Trump is promising for four or five weeks from now could hurt American companies enormously. It could be devastating for Apple. Uh, some say it could uh, take 25% off their iPhone sales if it's imposed in China and not just imposed in the United States. WeChat may not mean a lot to a lot of our uh, of your listeners, but in China, if you show up at a cash register with a credit card, people look at you askance because everyone does that on their mobile phone with WeChat. And so, in the presidential meeting with the CEOs, you had you know you had Ford, you had Walmart, you had Apple, you had Disney, Procter and Gamble, Intel, sure. UPS. They don't want to lose access to the second biggest market in the world. So when you said who has leverage. I think both sides will lose enormously if we don't somehow put a bottom on the decline of the relationship and figure out how we can compete with each other strongly, very, very, uh, very strongly, but at the same time figure out a way to collaborate as the two biggest uh, economies in the world. Of course, it's a big topic for sure there. Tori Smith, Fred Kemp, thank you both very much for your thoughts. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right, coming up on the show, the app makers are revolting and Apple Apple is their target. A look at who's joining Epic Games pushing back against the tech giant, plus Square, PayPal, just two of the payment stocks soaring this year. We'll take a look at some of the real winners in the shift to digital and who is best positioned to keep those gains going forward. The exchange is back right after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's check in with Frank Holland for a CNBC News update. Good afternoon, Frank. And good afternoon to you, Dom. Here's your CNBC News update for this hour. Reuters reporting the Trump administration's payments to coronavirus vaccine makers are conditional on those companies reaching specific timing targets for launching clinical trials, gaining regulatory approval and manufacturing doses. Former President Barack Obama and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi are urging Americans to submit their mail-in ballots early for the upcoming election to avoid post office delays. Democratic leaders are worried the president's administration is undermining the Postal Service's operations at a time when more voters are looking to cast their ballots by mail to avoid the risk of contracting COVID-19. Peter Madoff, the brother of the Ponzi schemer Bernie Madoff, has been released from federal custody after serving time for his involvement in the massive scam. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison in 2012. That's the CNBC News updated this hour. Dom, back over to you. All right, Frank Holland, thank you very much for that. We'll see you again, of course, in rapid fire later on this hour. Meanwhile, July retail sales climbed for the third straight month, but spending came in lower than expected, thanks mostly to a slowdown in the automobile sector. This as retail bankruptcies continue to pile up. 
Brands like J. Crew, Neiman Marcus, Brooks Brothers, J.C. Penney, many, many more have all filed for bankruptcy since the pandemic started. Meanwhile, some companies are taking steps to avoid that particular fate. Today, Rent the Runway announced it is permanently closing its brick and mortar locations. Let's bring in CNBC.com retail reporter Lauren Thomas for more on this. And Lauren, it doesn't seem like it's all that surprising for companies to adapt. But why exactly is this important? Sure. Well, first off, thanks for having me, Dom. So we did report earlier today on on CNBC that Rent the Runway is permanently closing all of its locations. Uh, It just had five stores in cities, including New York and Washington, D.C. and L.A. Now it is going to turn its New York store into a permanent drop-off location. So if you're familiar with the the Rent the Runway business model, essentially women use it um, to rent out accessories or clothes um, on a monthly, weekly basis, uh, turning those, swapping those in and out. And Many women would use this service or have used this service for to go to a, a wedding or a formal event or to wear outfits, you know, to, to work every day. And certainly the, the pandemic in many ways has kind of upended these things that are used to be just part of our normal lives. Um, and we, I think, have seen, you know, Rent the Runway's business model struggle, like many retailers, uh, because of that. And so when I spoke to the COO of Rent the Runway earlier this week about the, the decision to close the stores, she said, you know, the, the company has been trying to cut costs. Cost, obviously manage costs down during the pandemic um, and is really going to turn to focus on its digital operations and again adding more of these drop-off locations um, not necessarily stores where you can can go find merchandise and we've already seen more than 6,000 store closures announced by retailers this year alone um, so this this certainly just adds to that this ongoing turmoil like you said I mean the whole business is getting upended for sure it doesn't it's not just retail it's everybody in this whole business with COVID-19 Uh, Lauren Thomas, thank you very much for that update. We appreciate it. Well, Apple's Fortnite, a legal win for Amazon's third-party sellers, and AMC is about to open its theaters and party like it's 1929. Yes, 1929. All that and more coming up in today's Rapid Fire. The Exchange will be back right after this. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here with their takes, Frank Holland, Seema Modi, and Mike Santoli. Our first topic du jour, Epic Games, the maker of that hit online game, Fortnite, is suing Apple and Google over what it claims are unfair policies around its app stores. But Epic is just the latest in a long line of companies calling out Apple for questionable business practices recently. CNBC.com technology editor Stephen Kovac joins us now with the latest details. And Steve, I mean, this is like David and Goliath, but they're both kind of like Goliaths, right? Yeah, Epic is not a tiny company. I think they're privately valued around $17 billion. They make a ton of money already, uh, not just through the App Store, on Apple's App Store, but through PlayStation and Nintendo Switch and basically anything with a screen that can run this Fortnite game. Um, And they're really poking the bear here, though. Apple um, is the dominant platform if you want to make money on mobile. And they theoretically want to be there, but they're sick of paying this 30% cut to Apple for every transaction. All right, so so this is interesting here. And and perhaps we'll turn to you, Mike. Uh, This this notion that Apple has been the market darling for such a long time. We talk about this $2 trillion mark that it may be coming up onto pretty soon. How important or how unimportant is an Epic Games lawsuit against their app store 
to their overall business prospects down the line. I mean, Dominos, in isolation, it doesn't have that much of an impact, but to the extent that it calls into question the, uh, the margins of its, uh, of its services business, right? I mean, it invented the App Store. Uh, it's had this kind of consistent policy, with some exceptions of taking a 30% cut uh, of these app developers. I think as a, as a general principle, it causes people to say, one, wow, Apple really is dominant. It really has these lush margins based on uh, charging other developers for this stuff. On the other hand, if there's any compromise to that, if it does buckle a little bit, I think it's an issue. I think it's interesting the market right now is taking a wait and see, just the, the cash flow of, of Apple and its massive balance sheet. All those things overwhelm this concern right now. But to the extent it, it makes people say, hey, why are we paying 30 times earnings for this company for the services side if, in fact, it's not bulletproof? So, so Frank, th this is an interesting story because Apple and Google do have a cut they take of all right. of these transactions. And Epic is trying to circumvent that. You maybe can't blame either side for being a little mad about this. Why exactly is this important for Epic? Well, you know, I'm a big gamer myself, so if Epic's complaint would somehow make things cheaper for gamers, sure, I might be on their side. But when you look at the numbers, Epic in the last 30 days, according to Steve's story, they made $43 million from the Apple App Store, only $3 million from the Google App Store, even though it's a bigger platform. Well, sometimes you have to pay to play, and these are basically sales leads. People are buying more when they go on that Apple App Store, so Epic, if you want to be on that Apple App Store, you just have to pay for it. Seema, are you a gamer? I am not a gamer. Uh, my fiance is, so I definitely am, am around someone who likes to play these games. But we'll have to see uh, if Epic is willing to, you know, play the fight with, uh, to play this fight with Apple, and how far it will take this conversation around the App Store and whether Apple is in fact monopolizing its App Store and will change its practices. We know CEO Tim Cook. Uh, cares a lot about brand and perception. So given the unique position that Epic is in, and in fact that it has you know, all of these users who are so young, will that perhaps push Tim Cook to change Apple's ways and it's sort of that 30% revenue that it takes from Apple developers? I mean, we'll see. All right, Steve Kovac, last word to you here. How scared should Alphabet and Apple be because yeah. of this kind of a lawsuit? It's those massive user bases that, <laughs> that are really uh, the key here. If you think about it with 350 million people playing Fortnite for billions of hours every month. And then you look at these other companies with these massive user bases. You have Spotify, you have Pile, you have Sonos. These people will be upset if their favorite apps are pulled from their favorite devices. And that is something Apple has to listen to. If the customers start complaining, then they might have to tweak the rules a little bit to make this happen. And even looking forward to the future of gaming for some services coming down the line from Microsoft and Google, those aren't allowed on the App Store either because, and those potentially compete with Apple's own gaming product. And so people are gonna wanna have more choice in the ability to play these. And Apple might have to start listening, uh, not just to the developers, but what their own customers want. All right, big deal for sure. Thanks very much, Steve Kovac. And for more on Epic, Apple's Epic <clears throat> App Store battle, be sure to go to CNBC.com. That story's up there right now. Thanks very much, guys. Well, next up here, shares of Coach and Kate Spade parent company Tapestry are higher today after an upgrade to outperform by analysts at Evercore ISI. The firm citing, quote, bold changes from Tapestry's interim management team as helpful to weathering the pandemic and says there's a compelling risk reward in Tapestry longer term. Former chairman and CEO Gene Zeitlin resigned last month amid misconduct allegations. Seema, I remember when it used to just be coach, but this is a big deal because it does say that the consumer maybe is still spending, even if it's not as much here in the U.S. as it is in other parts of the world, right? 
And to your point, Dom, I wonder if the current economic backdrop actually creates uh, a new opportunity for affordable luxury, which is the segment that Tapestry, Coach, Kate Spade, they operate in. Does that actually give them a winning advantage here over the likes of LVMH and Chanel, <coughs> those type of products that perhaps you want to have that in-store experience before you buy one of their products, whereas, uh, whereas Kate Spade and Tapestry, you know, their products are priced uh, at a discount compared to those bigger brands. Yeah, Frank Holland, that, right. that, that's an interesting point here because I think of LVMH and I think of, you know, caring brands, you know, Christian Dior, anything like right. that. Those are those are premium price points compared to a Kate Spade or a Coach. What exactly does that then tell us about where the real demand is? Is it just a hair below that ultra luxury side of things? Tom, you know, honestly, I have no idea. I'm not a customer. I've never bought anything from Tapestry in my life. And until just now, I, I didn't know what it was. But I do know a lot of people that do. I have sisters. I have, you know, my stepmom, my aunts. They buy a lot of Coach. They buy a lot of Kate Spade. There's so much pent-up demand to buy things, and it's really kind of, to me, a recovery play. Do you think the holiday seasons are going to be somewhat normal, or at least where they are now? Because I know so many people that want to go out and shop and buy presents for people and things like that. Also, the company said they added one million new customers through their digital channels. That's great. A lot of those people are Gen Y and millennials, but their existing customers, I think, are still spenders and people that have money in many cases. So I think this stock has just so much upside for recovery if you think... Uh, there's any chance we're going to get back to anything close to normal by the holiday season. Mike, I I'm not sure about your household. Do you have a lot of Coach or Kate Spade floating around yours? I know it's, that my wife is a Kate Spade person. It, so. it, it is kicking around for sure. Um, what I remember too, Dom, back when it was Coach, back when it was just that brand, uh, the CEO at the time used to say that only Apple stores were more coveted by mall landlords in terms of the traffic they generated versus coach. So they were second to Apple at the time, so, so he claimed. So clearly this was built upon brand affinity, and I think there's a case to be made that the brands that do have that, that kind of stickiness with customers that are recognizable, uh, they have an advantage here as opposed to the distributors or just kind of basics. Uh, for lack of a better term. So, you know, yeah, it's a pretty decent contrarian stock call to say, stick with this company. The balance sheet looks okay uh, at this point, so they could probably weather this period. And in theory, people are going to want to have, you know, an accessory or a new bag to go out to show people when they're out of their homes at All some right. point. Seema, I mean, you're a consumer spender here. Where do you spend your money? Is it at Kate Spade and Coach or is it elsewhere? I'm just saving my money. I'm not, part, I'm not part of this whole trend of people, uh, you know, putting money to work in retail. You know, we're not going out as much. We're not going to Broadway musicals or events. So there's not a need to spend as much, in my opinion, on, on clothes and, and purses. So for now, uh, I'm not putting that much, much money into retail. All right. Well, one segment that we do need to see some kind of pickup in traffic in is in payments, because next up here, we got payment stocks surging as more people use digital and contactless payments during the pandemic. They may not be going to a store but they're using some kind of a payment transaction. Some of the names cashing in this year, PayPal up 77%, Square up a whopping 125%. Is it time for investors to cash out of these big runs or should they charge into these payment names? See what I did there, guys. Seema, we'll start with you here. Well, I think the outperformance of these payment stocks is even more pronounced when you take a look at that, take a look at their performance in comparison to the traditional credit card companies that have severely underperformed the market so far this year. So these companies have clearly found a unique selling point and it's worked especially for small businesses. All right, Mike. So as we talk about payments companies, it's been red hot. There's a there's a instinct that you want to take some profits here. Is, is the trend your friend? Um, 
It, longer term, I think the underlying trend is absolutely friendly for investors here. The big question is, uh, is there room for all of them? If you toted up all the market caps of the PayPal's and the Squares and these other players, uh, is there really enough when you're when you're also, of course, have Visa and Mastercard out there, which are, you know, in, on some layer of this uh, of this whole process? Square uh, PayPal looks like uh, that stock broke stride a little bit after an amazing run. And the bet here, if you're buying them at these levels, is not it's not just that customers, you know, who are introduced to more electronic payments during this shutdown period stay with it but that uh, it almost accelerates from here and they like to say that their main competitor is cash which in theory is in uh, perpetual decline but uh, it's it's unclear if the market maybe got ahead of it uh, a little bit in this last few months it's so funny to hear paypal referred to as a mega cap technology oh, stock yeah. these days all right next up guys a major setback for a mega cap we're talking amazon.com a california appeals court just ruled that the retail <clears throat> juggernaut can can be held liable for damages for defective goods sold on its marketplace. The ruling was part of a lawsuit from a woman who claims a faulty laptop battery she bought from a third-party seller on Amazon caught fire, gave her third-degree burns. The ruling is a big blow to Amazon, as third-party sellers account for about 60, 60% of its overall e-commerce business. Frank Holland, right. this is a big deal. This is a huge deal, Dom, but the thing is that Amazon's long ago stated, or at least made it clear, it's more than a marketplace. It, it guarantees shipping on certain items from its third-party sellers. It's taken down things that were fraudulent during the beginning of the pandemic or people that tried to gouge prices during the beginning of the pandemic. It curates clothing and sends them to you in a box. It does more than just a marketplace. It's not just a place to sell things. Amazon's sort of a digital utility. Um, it does need to have some level of responsibility. I don't know if being able to sue them for defective products is the answer. Perhaps your purchase price that you pay for something be held in escrow until you're totally satisfied or for a certain amount of days could be another compromise. But certainly Amazon is more than a marketplace. Mike, how much is Amazon or how much should they be responsible for the overall supply chain that they have? Because this is, again, they're, they're not actually making the stuff and selling it. They're right. just allowing people to use their bazaar, if you will. Yeah, it's, a, it's certainly debatable. And, and, you know, if you want to make the analogy to a Walmart or somebody where there's a physical store, uh, you'd be suing the product maker most likely if, if there was something defective. Uh, but it probably raises a similar question of, you know, Amazon does a certain amount of vetting of these vendors. Uh, it accepts payments uh, for them. And it almost reminds me a little bit of the task that something like Facebook has, which is we know that there are all these users creating content that are deemed harmful on some level. And it's just an amazing task to try and keep on top of it and find out about ones that do kind of cross the line and then shut them down. So it seems like it could be uh, a major expense, uh, not big in terms of Amazon's overall scale, but a major new expense to try and uh, and make sure that you're managing that liability end of things. Well, too. you know that there are going to be folks out there saying that Amazon is worth one and a half trillion dollars that you'd be able to shell out a little bit of money to, to police some of these things. All right, guys, finally, this is a good one. AMC theaters reopening with a bang and a bargain. The company says it will offer customers, get this, 15 cents, one five cent movie tickets. You heard that right. When it reopens more than 100 locations later on this month, AMC says it is in honor of its 100th anniversary and reflects typical ticket prices that go back to the 1920s. The 15-cent offer is good for one day only, that is August 20th, while the celebration will feature showings of classic movies like Back to the Futures, the original Ghostbusters, and Grease. Here's Seema to you first. Would a 15-cent movie ticket get you to go into a public theater? 
Well, that's the key question. For myself, no, I'm just not ready to be in a, a closed environment as of yet. But I think that lower price, 15 cents, I mean, that's certainly one way to entice customers to get them in the door, especially as so many people through this pandemic have just found that convenience of renting their movies or watching them on Netflix or Disney Plus from their home. Frank Holland, have you changed your media consumption habits given the COVID pandemic? 100% we all have. And I'm like, just like Seema, I'm not going to go into a, a movie theater for quite some time. But this is designed to attract people who are first movers on kind of coming back to, to life and going back to doing normal things. A 15 cent ticket takes away all the risk. And they're also showing movies. This is the important part that we all know already and many of us already like. Things like Inception and Black Panther. So really the, what, you're, what you're buying with this ticket is just an experience. You're going back to see if you think it's safe. If you don't think it's safe, you lost 15 cents or 30 cents and you leave. Mike Santoli, over under, last word to you. A date for when you will go back to a public movie theater. Um, I would say late this year is a possibility. I'm assuming there's going to be all the social distancing measures and all the rest of it. And, uh, you know, it seems to me what this is right here is AMC saying, we'll essentially let you in the door for the privilege of buying a $6 tub of popcorn, <laughs> which is where we make our money anyway. It is true. And a $5 Coke. Anyway, thanks, guys, very much. Frank Holland, Seema Modi and Mike Santoli with today's Rapid Fire Friday edition. Well, still ahead on the show, this week put a halt on record low mortgage rates. That's just one of the new challenges applicants are now facing. Those details and what it means for the red-hot housing market, that's coming up next. And as a reminder, you can always watch us or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The exchange is back in two minutes. Welcome back. Let's move to the housing market where a perfect storm is making it suddenly harder to refinance your mortgage. Diana Olick joins us now to explain, Diana, this is crazy because I'm trying to go through this process right now. It's not easy. It is not easy and you're okay because you're already in the process. But recently, a number of changes are making it not only harder, but more expensive to refinance your home loan. First is rising mortgage rates. The headline has been record low after record low and rates are still lower than a year ago. But in the last week, we've gone from solidly under 3% to solidly over it. That according to Mortgage News Daily. Now, part of it is rising treasury yields, but then rates moved even higher yesterday after Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac hiked Fees for lenders up 50 basis points for refinances. That amounts to about $1,500 on a $300,000 mortgage. Now, lenders don't have to, but they will likely pass this on to borrowers. The market reacted very quickly with rates moving even higher. And then there's credit scores. The median FICO credit score for mortgages originated in Q2 of this year jumped to 784. That's the highest since the New York Fed began tracking this back in 1999. Now, the share going to borrowers with a score under 660 dropped below the level seen after the financial crisis. And all of this makes it harder for borrowers to refinance. And that dumb had been a real bright spot in a tough economy is just saving a little on that monthly payment or possibly taking some cash out. So, so this is interesting, too, because I, I, I've been kind of moving around and checking out all of these interest rate sites and whatnot. One of the things I've noticed that there's a huge discrepancy in terms of rates that you can get based upon geography and then whether or not it's a conforming loan or a jumbo mortgage. For a lot of folks out there, it seems like banks almost don't want to lend at the jumbo side of things. What is that dynamic like and how is that playing out? 
Well, it's a lot harder at the jumbo side because they're trying to either package them and sell them off or they have to hold them on their balance sheets. Because remember, if it's a non-conforming loan, then Fannie and Freddie, which are the bulk of the market and FHA, the rest of the market, don't back jumbo loans. So they've got to hold that on their sheets. And that means they're worried about risk. So no, they're not particularly thrilled about jumbo lending. And that makes it harder not just to buy a home, especially as prices are so high, but to refinance if you already have a jumbo mortgage. In fact, a lot of people are now moving to 15-year fixed and even 10-year arms that are fixed for 10 years but have lower rates. Those are a bit easier. All right. A huge dynamic brewing there in the mortgage market. Diana Olick, thank you very much as always for your take there. We appreciate it. Well, coming up, few people would take the chance and start a new business during the pandemic, but one couple did just that. We'll talk to the owners of the Newark Moonlight Cinema, which opened on July 24th, just last month. That's coming up next. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. Throughout the COVID-19 lockdowns, movie theaters are among the hardest hit businesses with many of the more than 40,000 indoor screens in the country still shut down. But drive-in movies have seen a resurgence as socially distanced forms of entertainment. One New Jersey family opened Newark's first drive-in theater since the 1980s. It is the Newark Moonlight Cinema, one of a few black-owned theaters in the country, and it's screening classics and cult favorites to full houses, so to speak. Joining us now are the co-founders of the Newark Moonlight Cinema, Ayana and Suri Morris. Uh, thank you very much both for being here with us. First of all, I love the fact that you started the business during the what could be called the peak of the COVID pandemic. What exactly was the impetus behind it? What inspired you guys to do it? So I'm a filmmaker. Um, I recently completed a documentary called Wise We Americans that I co-directed with Miyamani. That premiered, well, it pre-screened at a festival here in Jersey. They adapted the pop-up drive-in movie theater experience for their festival. I thought it was a really good idea. I came to my husband. I said, hey, I want to do a pop-up drive-in movie theater. And he said the Bear Stadium would be a great site for that. And the rest has been history. So, so Suri, so I, I, I'm trying to figure out what exactly the economics looked like. When you, when you had your business plan together, were there certain things during the pandemic that were a tailwind for you? Was it real estate values? Was it obtaining certain pieces of hardware, movie rights, anything like that? What exactly was so attractive about doing this at this time? Well, just from a, from a business standpoint, you know, when, when things are low and at their worst, that's the time when you invest and you buy, right? So based off that, you know, that premise, you know, we thought that this idea would be great. So the only thing that we, everything else from a, from a financial standpoint was okay. The only thing we had an issue with was just making sure we followed uh, the COVID-19 guidelines and making sure that, you know, we were lock in step with whatever the governor, Phil Murphy, said so that we made sure we abide by everything. But in terms of the finances and the financials for everything, you know, it was something that was within our financial uh, wherewithal. So, you know, we took care of it. So, Ayana, as you take a look at the future of this business, it's fledgling right now. It's just about a month old. But you had to look maybe a year out, three years, five years, maybe even beyond. What exactly do you think the long term trajectory for your business is? Are you forecasting that the covid threat goes away at some point? 
we are forecasting that the COVID threat goes away, but I think because of the pandemic, it allowed this old time classic to kind of get new life and bring new life into it. So we're seeing that we're getting tremendous feedback. People are asking us to stay open for as long as possible. We're slated to close October 4th, but we're already looking at extending the season based off the feedback. And uh, we're definitely coming back next year. All right, so let's talk about Suri. How much is it going to cost me, my wife, and my two kids to drive our vehicle into your theater at the Newark Moonlight and have a movie night for four of us with all of the accoutrement, popcorn, soda, that sort of stuff? Yeah, so perfect, right? So uh, we made the prices affordable because we want people to come. We wanted to be an experience that everybody can have a piece of. So for any adults, uh, not adults, but anybody ages uh, 13 and over, uh, it's $12. Any uh, kids 4 through 13 is $8. And anybody, any kids 4 and under is free. Uh, you know, our sodas cost about, uh, I think, like $4. Burgers is around like $6. Yes, Chicken. we have full concession <laughs> on site, full concession. Yeah. So, so for a family of four, in my opinion, you probably put it 12, 12, that's 24, 16, that's 40. Maybe about $60, $65, and that's four tickets and four meals. All right, that's not too bad there. Now, now before we let you go, this is, you're only one of a handful of black-owned businesses with regard to theaters. How exactly do you take that? Is there a responsibility that you have? Do you feel like you need to set an example and maybe help others get into this business as well? Um, I, I, I'll start and I'll let my wife finish. Um, I don't think that we have to set an example. I just think that we just have to do what we normally do in our businesses, and that's provide great customer service and provide something that our consumers need. I think that for us, you know, this we thought it was a good idea. We didn't know it was going to get this amount of feedback and this much positive, uh, positive stories and people sharing it. So we're very excited about that. But we do think that it is important for sure. African-Americans to be able to have ownership, to be able to get of course. to the movie there's okay. a lot of politics in it, you know, it All costs right. a lot of money, but, you know, it's a, it's a great opportunity for us. And we hope that we can set an example for others. Fantastic. Ayana and Sari, thank you guys very much and good luck with your business. Keep it right here because Power Lunch comes up after this. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.